Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Susan Richardson. Uh, She's the Arthur C. Williams Professor of Chemistry uh, and Environmental Studies at uh, University of South Carolina. We're going to talk about water treatment, uh, water drinking quality, and uh, all water-related issues. So, Susan, thanks for coming. Yes, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So uh, what what got you interested in water and water quality, you know, however long ago you started? Yeah, so um, just a quick background. I've been at the University of South Carolina for about six and a half years now. But before that, I worked as a research chemist at the U.S. EPA's National Exposure Research Laboratory for almost 25 years. And it was back when I was a fairly new scientist, just within the first couple of years of working there, that I had these two famous scientists come down from two different places. One was at the University of North Carolina and the other one was at the EPA lab in Cincinnati. They came out down at different times within a couple months of each other. Both had high interest in drinking water disinfection byproducts and they knew that I had expertise in identifying unknowns in, in water. And so they came down to seek out my expertise to see if I would collaborate with them. And, um, and in chatting with each of these two fairly well-known scientists, they explained why drinking water DVPs, disinfection byproducts, are important and the human health effects that they've been linked to at that time. At that time, there were, there were several human epidemiologic studies that linked DBPs to bladder cancer in human populations. And since, there, there, the, since that time, there have been some other effects found as well. But they um, needed my help, and um, I had the right expertise. And this seemed like a hugely important issue, and one that I really didn't know anything about until these two scientists came down to chat with me about it. So that's how it all got started. So, okay, DBPs are disinfection byproducts. Correct. Where, where do they come from? What is, what's disinfection mean at what stage? Right, so disinfection byproducts, DBPs, are not your ordinary contaminants that might be released in rivers and things like this. DBPs are actually formed during drinking water treatment. So they're formed by the reaction of chlorine and other disinfectants with naturally occurring organic matter, just natural organic matter that comes from decomposing leaves and plants and other things that fall into rivers and lakes. And also you can have some anthropogenic, some man-made contaminants that they react with as well, these disinfectants, as well as salts, including bromide and iodide that can be in coastal cities from saltwater intrusion. So that gamish of things reacts with the disinfectants to form DVPs. So what are some of the specific DVPs that are formed? What are their chemical names? Which ones are the real bad actors? Yeah, so EPA regulates only 11 DBPs. They regulate four trihalomethanes, PHMs, and five halocytic acids. 
also chlorite and bromate are regulated. But other than the regulated DVPs, there are many more unregulated DVPs that we've been uncovering. And some of the bad actors, the most toxic ones of these include ones that have iodines in their structures. So while EPA regulates chlorinated, chlorine-containing, and bromine-containing DBPs, they do not regulate these iodine-containing, iodo-DBPs, we call them, including iodoacetic acid, which is the most genotoxic, causes DNA damage in cells. Of all the DBPs that we've looked at so far, it's the most toxic, iodoacetic acid. Very similar to chloroacetic acid and bromoacetic acid, which are regulated, but is much more toxic. And also some nitrogen-containing DBPs, we call them N-DBPs for nitrogen, are very much more toxic than um, the regulated DBPs that don't have nitrogen. And those chemicals would include haloacetonitriles, things like dichloroacetonitrile or dibromoacetonitrile, also haloacid amides like dichloroacid amide, and then you have halonitromethane compounds too, DBPs that are also very toxic. So it turns out that these several of these DBPs, many of them that we don't regulate, are much more toxic than the ones that we do regulate. In water, though, that, that someone would consume, I mean, there's tons of combinations of all these chemicals. How do you evaluate what each chemical does? And do you look at it in isolation or do you, you know, do they act differently in combination with each other? Like, how do you figure this out? That's a great question. Um, so I've, I'm a chemist and I can only kind of do the chemistry things that I do. So I interface closely with toxicologists who are trying to help me answer this question, this important question, what's causing the, which of these GBPs are causing the human health effects and how can we get rid of them ultimately in drinking water? So a lot of these new DBPs that we've identified that in my group, I've managed to get either purchase standards for them so I can confirm them, confirm their identities. And also sometimes we have to have a lot of them synthesized because you can't purchase some of them. Probably had more than, probably close to 300 of these synthesized over, over time. And when I do that, I always get extra made or extra that I purchase for my toxicologist colleagues. Um, one important toxicologist I've worked with for many years is Michael Pleva from the University of Illinois, but I've also worked with some other toxicologists at the US EPA as well. So I always give some of these standards to my toxicologist friends to see which ones are the most toxic so we can figure out which ones are driving the human health effects and which ones we need to focus our research on. So they've largely measured them in these different in vitro and occasionally in vivo assays uh, for toxicity. And that's almost always done with individual chemicals. They'll test them chemical by chemical, but there have been a few studies in, um, that use defined mixtures that we can mix a few of these together. So there are a few studies where we look for um, potentially synergistic or antagonistic effects, whether the effects are additive, like adding all the DBPs together in a mixture, or whether they have special interactions, synergistic or antagonistic effects. So they're done both ways, but mostly testing individual DBP chemicals. Well, what about, I, I would think a lot of water that's used is, is consumed cold, but if I'm using hot water for something, does that change the chemistry a lot? And it seems like this, it's just tough, you know, if, if, 
if you're monitoring a water stream, there's so much volume of material. I can't imagine that the constituents are at all constant. So you get like bumps of this or that or concentrations of this that go up or down. And like, how do you how do you figure this out? Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, and in, in fact, we've done um, one study where we included cold water versus hot water. And there have been at, been at least a couple of other researchers to do the same thing. And so you know, most of us have hot water heaters in our house, or we have some kind of tankless heater that heats the water. And, and what can happen, what we've seen to happen is that increased levels of DBPs can be formed in that warmer water because you still have that active disinfectant still there, like chlorine might be left, you know, in the water. So it can continue to react with things that are still present in the water, that natural organic matter and other constituents. And even some DVPs can react to form other DVPs over time. And it is a complex mixture and almost no drinking water is alike. You know, it varies all over the country, all over the U.S., varies other parts of the world. It all depends what kind of organic matter you have and what kind of mixture you have in your water, The whether you're near the coast and you have saltwater intrusion where you can get bromide and iodide to form the more toxic brominated and iodinated byproducts. And, and also whether you have heavily wastewater impacted source waters, like there's there are a couple of rivers I can think of that during the summer months or during the dry months, they can be almost, they can be 90 to 100% treated wastewater coming in those um, small rivers and creeks. And so depending on what your impacts are for your source waters that are used to treat for drinking water, whether it's river water, lake water, groundwater, depending on those impacts and where you are, the DBPs can be completely different. Also, uh, a lot of water, I don't know what percentage of consumed water is bottled water, but then you've got plastics that leach into it. I mean, it's a whole new set of issues. Do you focus at all on that or is that a completely different area? Yes, you're right that bottled water is a whole other issue. And um, phthalates that you're referring to, phthalates, as plasticizers can leach into the water. And um, we also were looking Recently, I have, we haven't published the study yet, but we were looking at DBPs in bottled waters recently. I had two undergraduates that this was their honors thesis pro project, and actually they won the best honors thesis. I was so proud of them for this work that they did at the University of South Carolina. But so with bottled water, a lot of people think that it comes from, all comes from natural spring water, but that's only some of them. And some spring water can be contaminated with DBPs and other things. But a lot of bottled water is just further treated tap water. So you think of the big names like Dasani and Aquafina, they're starting with tap water and then they're further purifying that tap water. So we found that you can have DBPs, but there are very much lower levels in that bottled water. And we're hoping to publish that work soon. This is work that we just recently completed. It would be funny if um, Dasani or Aquafina, they made a water filter for your home with their logo on it. And the, the premise was that you put it on your faucet and whatever comes out will be Dasani or be Aquafina. I wonder if people would like that. Yeah, interesting, interesting. I haven't heard that yet, but I um, that sounds like a good idea. Um, and and Maybe, by the I way, I, re I remember when bottled water became a big popular thing. It used to be nobody drank bottled water. Um, and Coca-Cola, I know, who makes Dasani, it was a no-brainer for them to get in this business because they were automatically purifying water to try to make 
Coca-Cola tastes the same all over the world. So they were already purifying water. And so they didn't have to add their expensive secret Coke formula to it. They just could just bottle it and sell it. So that was a no brainer for them to do that. And I assume that Pepsi that makes Aquafina, you know, it was the same decision for them. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, has anyone run various waters to, uh, I don't know what the, the, the best way to see everything in the water would be if it's even close to possible, but like what kind of analytics would you use if you wanted to try to know everything that's in a given water stream? Gas chromatograph? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'll tell you what we do. So we, we definitely do a combination of non-target unknown analysis and targeted quantitative analysis where you know what you're looking for. And um, for the target um, analysis, our my group now does about 70 DBPs. We can measure and quantify about 70 DBPs, which is more than anybody else is doing right now. And we use gas chromatography GC with mass spectrometry. All our methods use GC mass spec. Um, we have to use various different kinds of extraction and derivatization techniques to capture all of those 70 DBPs because they have very different properties. And so, for example, the halo aldehydes are very, very water soluble, and you will not extract them out of water unless you derivatize them. So we derivatize with something called pentafluorobenzylhydroxylamine, PFBHA, that will turn those very, very polar haloaldehydes into nonpolar chemicals that you can then extract and measure, you know, with mass spectrometry, with GC mass spec. Um, and then for our uh, non-target unknown analysis, which has been my bread and butter for a long, long, long time, ever since the early days of EPA, we use a lot of high-resolution mass spectrometry, and we couple that with both GC gas chromatography and with liquid chromatography, LC, to go after that, try to go after that whole chemical space that's out there for DBPs. So the, with GC mass spec, you're going to get the chemical space that is volatile and semi-volatile and kind of, I would say, low molecular weightish material. So anything up until close to 700 molecular weight, GC mass spec can be good. But then the LC mass spec can capture the highly polar compounds and also higher molecular weight compounds. So we use both of those together to try to identify as many things as we can in drinking water to not miss important things. How much control is there over the disinfectants used? Um, are there certain ones that create a much friendlier profile, but maybe don't work as well? You know, like what are the, how do you, how do you go back to the, um, you know, the companies and the treatment plants that process the water and, and tell them what to do or not do, what to use or not use? Yeah, that's a really good question. And we, we've had a lot of drinking water treatment plants work with us through the years. We've got many of them working on a, an important project on finding the forcing factors of toxicity right now. So we always communicate our results with them. Um, but the different disinfectants will form unique suites of byproducts of DVPs. Chlorine and chloramine will form similar DBPs, but there are some that are unique to chloramine. For example, those very toxic iodinated byproducts, they form almost exclusively or form much more with chloramine, monochloramine, than they do with chlorine. But they would only be a problem if you have natural iodide, saltwater intrusion into your water supplies, or if you have, we discovered 
iodinated x-ray contrast media that are used for medical imaging, when those get released to rivers, they can also get into drinking water plants to form these iodo-DVPs. So a lot of plants, a lot of drinking water plants have switched from chlorine to chloramine to lower the regulated DVP levels. And in fact, that's the big advantage for monochloramine. And it also has a longer lasting residual in the distribution system. So those pipes after the water leaves the plant and goes to your home or your office, that's the distribution system. And the chloramine will have a longer lasting dis disinfection residual, which will keep killing bacteria and things like that. Um, but but the main reason it, for switching to monochloramine is to lower those regulated DVP levels. So you can lower the trihalomethanes and halocytic acids that are regulated by as much as 90% by just switching to monochloramine. And what the chlorine plants do is if you've got chlorine, all you have to do is add ammonia. Chlorine plus ammonia equals chloramines and off you go and bam, you've got 90% reduction in the regulated DBPs. But the big but is you push down on those regulated ones and other ones can pop up like the more toxic iodinated ones that I mentioned before. And then also nitrosamines, which EPA has been recently considering whether to regulate. Nitrosamines are formed at much higher levels with chloramine. And then just another popular disinfectant is ozone. And ozone's probably the best of all the disinfectants. It, it kills pathogens better than anything. But if you have any bromide in your water, if you're near the coast or some other places in the country that have bromide too, you can form bromate with ozone. And bromate is one of those 11 regulated DBPs. So you've got that balancing act. Ozone's great disinfectant. It forms a lot lower levels of halogenated byproducts in general. But if you've got any bromide, you might exceed the bromate regulation. Um, and then two other disinfectants I'm, I think of are UV disinfection, which is not a chemical, but it can, when it's used with secondary chlorination or chloramination, it can form higher levels of some DBPs and activate the organic matter to form higher levels of some DBPs. But otherwise, it's a great disinfectant, and I would be a proponent of potentially using UV with a lower dose of chlorine at the end. And, and then finally, chlorine dioxide is another good disinfectant, one of the common ones. And but its downfall is that while it reduces the formation of most DBPs, including the regulated ones, the chlorite is formed with chlorine dioxide, and chlorite is one of those 11 regulated DBPs. So it's a balancing act that the drinking water plant operators have to do. They've got to meet the regulations, and they've got to kill the pathogens. It's hugely important. But depending on the disinfectant that they choose and what's in their source waters, they have the potential to form some of these more toxic DBPs, depending. So it's very complex. Well, do they, it is, yeah. What Do the regulations make sense? Or do they make sense only for certain waters or only under certain conditions? You know, like the, there's X number of things regulated, but you said they're finding so many other chemicals. Maybe the regulations need to be recast, again, in terms of a balance of, you know, maybe there's, I don't know, 50 DDPs and, the regulations stipulate that none of them can be above a certain level, and yet half of them need to be at this level or below, unless it creates this profile. Like, you know, do, you, do you see a recasting that would make water quality better in general if more things are accounted for? 
That's a great question. And it's really interesting because this is one that many scientists in my field have been grappling with, trying to grapple with. And in our, we have a Gordon Research Conference. We've talked about exactly these issues you're talking about. So let me give you a background and I'll give you also what we, what I think personally could be done that might be a good path forward for this. Um, but the regulations that EPA came up with were originally started in 1979 in the Safe Drinking Water Act. And what happened was it wasn't until 1974 that the first DVPs were identified. So we've been using these disinfectants to treat drinking water since the early 1900s, but it wasn't until 1974 when the first DVP was identified and it was chloroform and the other trihalomethanes. So then some toxicologists got together found out that they were carcinogenic in animals, and EPA decided to regulate the trihalomethanes in 1979, which was hugely important. And um, so those were first controlled, but then EPA realized that, oh, there are also halocytic acids that don't always track with the trihalomethanes, and they decided to regulate five of the halocytic acids. They're considering to regulate a few other halocytic acids now, but these regulations are really slow and EPA, rightly so, likes to have a lot of hard scientific data, like a lot of animal studies in two different species. They like to have um, national occurrence data so that they know nationally what these levels are in different drinking water systems. So they like to have a lot of hard data before they decide whether to regulate a new DVP or any new chemical. And because it's very difficult, especially now to get those animal studies done, they're so expensive. I've heard before that it can take anywhere three to $5 million to do an animal study, to do this multi-generational toxicity experiment that they like to do. It's very expensive. And a lot of the let's just call it traditional toxicologists have retired. They're retiring and they're not necessarily refilling those positions, positions with classical toxicologists. They're refilling them with high throughput kind of toxicologists that do these screening kind of these, these quick screenings that I think EPA will never base a regulation on. So we're losing the good toxicologists. Those toxicology experiments are, are expensive. And so how will we ever have any new regulations? So I'm kind of a little discouraged actually in having come from my EPA background, I've seen how slow it is. And, um, and even with like perchlorate was supposed to be one of the new chemicals to finally get regulated, but that decision was made a few years ago. And now I've heard that EPA has decided to not regulate it. So it's, it's a slow process. So are there some surrogates we can use? I don't necessarily propose that we need to regulate all of these DBPs that we've studied so far. And we talked about these kind of things at the Gordon Research Conference on DBPs, whether we should have a few example surrogates. And by the way, I meant to mention that trihalomethanes in mm -hmm. that 1979 Drinking Water Act, Safe Drinking Water Act, 
were known to be surrogates at the time. EPA knew that there would be other DBPs to, to be identified as time went on, but they thought those would be good, good surrogates for all the other DBPs formed with chlorination and other disinfectants. And it turns out they're not necessarily good surrogates. So you, and I mentioned before, you might push down on the trihalomethanes, trying to minimize them by switching from chlorine to chloramine treatment, but then you pop up on the iodinated DBPs and the nitrosamines that are more toxic. So there's this balancing act that has to take place. So, you know, do we go to surrogate measurements? Should we do total organic bromine or total organic iodine, for example, that could that would cover all of that space of all brominated and iodinated DBPs? Is there some way to do it for nitrogen containing DBPs? And, you know, should we use something like the precautionary principle that's used a lot in Europe? And should we do something now rather than waiting 30 years from now when we might have all that hard animal data, toxicology data, and national occurrence data? Should we do something now rather than wait 30 years from now and find out, oh, you know, we had a problem and wish we had done something? So those are the kinds of things that are being um, discussed right now. Well, what, what in water seems to allow, let's say, bacteria to proliferate? It seems like one of the trade-offs is between organic and inorganic matter. And then I know turbidity plays a role. Those particles can be a hiding spot for you know, bacteria, viruses, et cetera. Like what about the order in which water treatment is done? Any insights there where if you switch the order up, you'll get better water without having to do anything extra? Yeah, good question. That's a good segue for me. Um, so with chloramination, Almost always plants will apply chlorine first for a limited amount of time and then apply ammonia. I mentioned chlorine plus ammonia equals chloramines. And, but that length of time that, that we call it the free chlorine contact time that the plant uses can vary. It can be zero time where they mix the chlorine and ammonia together directly. Not many plants do that anymore, but that would be your way of minimizing the regulated DVPs as much as possible. But then if you, so the danger is if you go too long with the chlorine before you add ammonia to form chloramine, you might exceed the regulations that you've got too long of a chlorine contact time. And the reasons that plants are switching to chloramines is to meet the regulations. So there's this balancing act, but I think there is a sweet spot we could go for. And I've got some research in, in this area that we haven't published quite yet, where there's a sweet spot where we can we can minimize the regulated trihalomethane halocytic acid levels at the same time of keeping down the iodo DBP levels. So the length of time and the order does matter. Um, and there, you know, there are plants that, that use all kinds of combinations, like even in my own plant in my local city where I am, they actually apply, apply a little bit of chlorine dioxide first then they apply chlorine, then they apply ammonia pretty quickly out of, out, um, after the chlorine. So you actually have three disinfectants going on at the same time. You have chlorine dioxide, chlorine, and chloramines going on. Um, and there's, yeah, a lot of people have been looking at these different combinations. And even another important thing that I've looked at more recently is applying granular activated carbon, GHC, right before you treat with chlorine or it can be after a short chlorine contact time 
And GHC just activated carbon, you know, like what's in a Brita filter, essentially. It's like having a giant Brita filter, but on the front side of the plant to to remove the natural organic matter precursors and other precursors on the front end, we think it's a better idea to try to remove things before they form, remove those precursors, knock them down to prevent the DVPs from forming rather than trying to remove everything after it's already formed, you know. And we found great promise. It wasn't a silver bullet. It wasn't that there were no negative findings, but I think overall GAC shows a lot of promise for tamping down on the DVP formation. Uh, If there was one thing that could magically be removed from water, that seems to, again, harbor a lot of other substances or enable their formation or just cause the whole thing to be a problem, what, what would that be? Yeah, mostly natural organic matter, humic acid. That's just the natural stuff from leaves and plants, right? If we could remove that effectively, and then I would say the, um, you know, the, the silver bullet too would be to remove bromide and iodide. If we could remove those three things, we would be in great shape. That would be the answer in my opinion. Hmm. Any methods to remove those or are they, I mean, like, why are they particularly difficult to remove if they're so important? Yeah, so GAC um, is being used at only a few treatment plants in the U.S. to remove the organic matter. And they've always talked about, oh, it's just so expensive. That's, it's all about money always, isn't it, in treatment. And nobody wants their water bill to go up by, I don't know, $2 a month or something like that. Everybody, the plants want to keep the water bills as low as they can. Um, But GAC is not prohibitively expensive. The city of Cincinnati has been using it for a long time, and they've been using it because they have the Ohio River water that they treat that's gone through so many industrial cities in the Northeast before it comes to Cincinnati. So that's the reason they use it. So I would say it's not bankrupting, bankrupting Cincinnati, and there are some places, you know, that's used. And so maybe we should use it more. And another way to remove the organic matter would be with membranes. And there is some use of membranes, um, but it's expensive. You know, it's electricity forcing the water through the membranes. You can have nanofiltration membranes, ultrafiltration membranes, and of course, reverse osmosis membranes that would exclude all of that organic matter, except for anything that's like neutral and 200 molecular weight or below. But typically reverse osmosis membranes are only used for desalination you know, and that's when, and desalinated water is a lot more expensive than our traditional, you know, fresh waters that are treated. So membranes could be effective. It's just a a matter of the cost. And with Mm. bromide and iodide, um, ion exchange resins could be used, but nothing so far has proven like the way we should go, in my opinion, with removing the bromide and the iodide. Nothing is quite cheap enough and feasible enough yet for it to be implemented in drinking water treatment plants. Hmm. I mean, have there been studies done where you've, um, you know, filtered the heck out of water and fed it to rats? Like you filtered everything out possible. And was there any like big health benefits of the rats? You know, has anything like that been done? Like kind of a reverse look at it, you know, from the other direction. Right. You know, with the project we had on GAC, we wanted to do some toxicology with that, but we didn't have, uh, there wasn't enough funding offered for that grant call with the Water Research Foundation, but I recommended this to them, and they've since just 
awarded a grant a few months ago to another group, not to my own team, but to another group. So there are some people looking into this now to get toxicology. It'll likely be in vitro in cells, not rather than feeding to the rats. The rat studies are always very expensive. Um, I have been involved in a rat study with EPA with the scientist Jane Ellen Simmons and a lot of other scientists from EPA in North Carolina where they weren't looking at the treated waters, but we were concentrating all the DVPs and feeding those to rats to look for the newer reproductive and developmental effects, so adverse birth outcomes, but not with the tact that you propose, which I think is a great one, to see what kind of treatment methods then can reduce those effects, those health effects. So it's what you recommend is definitely something that needs to be done more rather than only trying to find what the bad actors are, which is what I've been doing, find solutions to the problem. Yeah, I just, I wondered too, like you said, um, you know, if you reduce one of the substances, the other ones predominate, you know, so there's these, uh, this competition going on. It's not like a living competition, but there's this chemical competition going on as well in the water quality. So it's just a very complex game. I don't know how, if, if, you know, if it's being modeled really actively or if they're just saying, all right, let's find more possible contaminants and just add to the list. It just, it's, right. I don't know, it's a really tough problem, I can see. It is because, uh, you know, never ending list, there's no way that any treatment plants would be able to measure for all those things. And I know that. And so, you know, is it a shorter list or some surrogate, easy to measure surrogate like total organic bromine or total organic iodine that could be used? And I did forget, I forgot to mention that one of the other ideas being put forward is could we just use toxicity as an endpoint for, you know, for drinking water, for regulation somehow, kind of like how they use Daphnia magna is like the, you know, the, the water flea, the canary for water, essentially, of whether the, you know, river water's got something toxic in it. Can we go that route and use some kind of toxicity endpoint as the regulatory limit? Hmm. So what do you think the uh, the near-term future of, uh, of, of water treatment is going to look like? Well, here, here's what I would like to see for the future. I would really like to see human epidemiologic studies that include measurements of some of these toxicity drivers that we've been identifying and others have been identifying recently. So like some of the nitrogen-containing DBPs, like halocytonitriles. Let's see in human epidemiologic studies if they are part of the bad actors, and if those are ones we need to get rid of, or even the iodinated DVPs. But so far, almost all of the epidemiologic studies have taken place, and there have been many of them. And we, So because of that, we know that there's increased bladder cancer. We know there's increased colorectal cancer. We know that there's increased miscarriage and um, birth effects also from DVPs, but we don't know which DVPs is a problem. And most of these epidemiologic studies have only used the four regulated trihalomethanes, and some of them have even just used chloroform. So I would love for them to move on to other DVPs. Of course, it's expensive to have those measured, which is why I think they haven't done those yet, but there need to be more of those kinds of studies and, um, and also there are new impacts on our water sources now. So climate change is causing increased droughts and floods. And especially with the droughts, you have concentration of wastewater contaminants in your rivers. So we treat our wastewater, but then that treated wastewater goes out to our rivers. 
And unfortunately, wastewater treatment doesn't remove everything in that wastewater. So those things can get into our drinking water supplies. And with droughts, those things concentrate in our rivers, just like in the Santa Ana River in California can have 100% treated wastewater at certain times of the year. The Trinity River in Texas can have really high wastewater contaminants. So thinking about those kind of contaminants, and, um, and also something we've looked at is hydraulic fracturing impacts on drinking water. They, you know, we call it fracking for short. And there's so much hydraulic fracturing that's gone on in the U.S. trying to go after our own oil and gas. And this is a way that we can get it out of shales easily. But they are introducing a lot of chemicals into these fracking wells and also the natural brines, high bromide and iodide, those salts are just naturally present in the shales and those can come back up out of the wells and cause formation of more toxic brominated and iodinated DDPs. So that's an important impact, new impact, recent impact that's been happening in recent years. So that, and also there are a lot of plants that are considering going to direct potable reuse of wastewater. So turning, purposely turning wastewater into drinking water. And in yeah. fact, Orange County, California has the largest indirect potable reuse plant in the world. They um, will treat the wastewater with extra steps, a lot of extra steps, membranes, advanced oxidation to try to get rid of, better get rid of those things that are present in wastewater. And then they put it in the ground to get some extra little bit of filtration and then pull it back up out of the ground and treat for drinking water with chlorine, other disinfectants, chloramine. And um, so that's one, that's the largest indirect potable reuse plant in the world. El Paso, Texas broke ground a few years ago. In fact, I was there about four years ago, maybe now, three or four years ago, and saw them breaking ground on the largest direct potable reuse plant in the world where they're going to take, is a closed pipe, closed loop system, going to take wastewater, treat it like crazy, not inject it in the ground, but send it directly through for drinking water treatment. And the reason for that is that El Paso is in the desert. They've got a half million people and they're, they've got salty groundwater that they've already have a desalination plant. They've got the largest inland desalination plant, I think, in the world treating that salty groundwater. And then on the other side of the Rio Grande, which goes dry five months out of the year because New Mexico is draining it off for crops. It's really terrible. Anyway, on the other side of the Rio Grande River that's dry some of the year, you've got Juarez, Mexico with I forget if it's a million and a half people, more than a million people that are also pumping on the same salty groundwater, tiny bit of fresh water. So poor El Paso is having to do something creative and they got the public to accept reusing wastewater because they have little alternative. So, but that's a growing thing. And I've heard that California is pushing that now rather than going toward desalination, which they've been doing. They had a public outcry a few years ago about this reusing wastewater. So they went toward desalination and there's a big desalination plant in San Diego and um, Carlsbad, California because of that. But I've heard recently that they've changed their minds and they're going more toward wastewater reuse. So that's an important growing area that there needs to be a lot more work in the future on. What about, um, you know, we have drinking water, but then we have water that you use that's not potable, you know, for showering, et cetera. Any sense in segmenting that and telling the community, you know, 
don't use this for that. And, you know, would that help reduce the burden, the load on various drinking supplies and maybe the wastewater, you know, recycling is done for, again, just showering and garden water and, you know, the, the other levels of, you know, recycling and treatment are done for the drinking water aspect of it. Right, exactly. And there is a lot of recycling of wastewater that's been done for a while, like for golf courses, you know, probably everybody knows that a lot of golf courses are, you know, are that we reuse wastewater for that. But as far as in our homes, there's been a lot of talk of that through the years. And there are some places, I can't recall the names to give you, cities that have have those different pipes, the purple pipes. I think they're purple pipes. I've never lived in a city that's had those, but it's super expensive to do that, to reconfigure households and bury anything under the ground like that. You know, it's like really expensive to do. So for new innovative neighborhoods that are being developed, that can be done relatively easy, but to, you know, tear up old places, you know, and make that happen is very difficult from what I understand, just expensive and difficult. So there's mm. not the big push that they're used that I used to hear about um, with that and reusing the like the gray water, recycling the gray water. Yeah, and then there's a whole set of testing too is, you know, if it just goes in your skin and you're inhaling the aerosols in the shower, is that bad? Is that not bad? I mean, even when you when you look at all these compounds too, I'm going to experience them one way if I drink them versus again, I'm in the hot shower and they're volatilizing and there's aerosols and all that. And I'm breathing them in. It may affect me totally differently. So, oh, geez, it's so complicated. Exactly. I didn't even mention your different routes of exposure. You, you hit a, the nail on the head. Um, you've got ingestion that everybody thinks about, but you're breathing in those volatile DVPs in your shower and, and some of them will go across the skin that germally absorb. We only know a few of those that do, thankfully, but there are many more that have not been studied. Um, so, you know, and so in your shower, in your bathtub, you know, washing dishes or whatever, or in your swimming pool, which can be one of the one of the worst ones. And um, in an indoor swimming pool, there have been studies that shown that um, an increased incidence of asthma for elite swimmers, swimmers that spend a lot of time in indoor pools have increased incidence of asthma. So you do have these other routes of exposure that are important too. And in fact, I'll, I'll never forget, there was a study several years ago that showed that a 10 minute warm shower will give you two times the exposure to volatile trihalomethanes than drinking two liters of tap water. So a 10 minute warm shower, twice the exposure than drinking two full liters of tap water. Um, pretty shocking, but, um, but it's only the volatile DVPs that you have to worry about for that, you know? So it's one subset of them. Mm -hmm. Trihelomethanes would be one of those. It may have to be a recommendation, you know, for any given area, the water treatment plants. Um, I mean, maybe the government subsidizes, maybe they don't, I don't know, but they, maybe they say, you know, for all your showers and bathing, uh, use this filter. And then for your drinking water, use that filter or just, you know, only use this on the showers, et cetera. And, uh, you know, that coupled with what we're doing is really the best we can do for your health. Right, right. And I do like the idea of some recommended treatments, whether they would be at the plant and you're talking about, you know, on the other end at your home. And there has been talk at conferences in the past. I haven't heard this discussed recently, but discussing whether we should have decentralized treatment. You know, should we have it all at the big drinking water plants and then have it distributed to everybody 
or should there be home filtration units that somebody comes and checks periodically? You know, the danger in that is that you're leaving it in the hands of the public that doesn't know how often maybe to change filters, you know, when they're pushing it. And so how do you make that happen? You have people come and check or, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, these kinds of discussions have been, you know, been taking place but I haven't seen any movement yet in that realm other than people just buying their Brita filters and other kinds of filters, um, you know? Mm. Okay. Well, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't envy you. It seems like it's such an incredibly complicated thing. I would even thinking about all the complication in order to make policy. I don't, it doesn't, I don't know. I'm not on the inside, but it doesn't feel like that's been done. It, it, you know, have are people really sitting with the totality of all the things that they have to balance, or are they just saying like, "Oh, these ten compounds are red flags, and we got to do something about it"? And they don't think about anything else. Yeah, I can tell you that at the EPA in the Office of Water, the folks that do the regulations, we have several of those scientists that regularly come to our Gordon conferences. There are usually like five of them that come at least. And and I have had, even have ongoing discussions with them. So they are fully aware. They're keeping their finger on the pulse of the research, but it's just difficult to know what to do. And because EPA likes to have national data, you know, so say I have 12 cities where I've got really good data for some of these DBPs that are very toxic. Is that not enough? I guess it's not enough, you know, and so when do you have enough data for those things? I think EPA, you know, and I worked for them for almost 25 years in a in the research in a research laboratory, not in Washington, D.C., but I got to see, you know, how they the environment they have to work in. And EPA seems like it's the, you know, the whipping post of Congress and like they'll standoffs with government shutdowns. They want to shut down EPA all the time and you know, um, they they face a lot of scrutiny, a lot of extra scrutiny that other agencies like, for example, USGS doesn't face these kinds of things. And it's because, you know, with re- new regulations, it impacts our industries, our companies. And so it's a balancing act. So you have people lobbying for those companies. And so EPA is in a very difficult position. I think the scientists and regulators that work for EPA have a really good sense of the research of what we're finding and others are finding, but make taking action and doing something about it is a whole different ball game. And, and I, I would say too, I, I want to say too, that, you know, kind of everything in moderation, I might sound like in giving you all this information that, you know, I don't drink water ever and I filter everything I drink and this kind of thing. So um, I, you know, take an informed view. Of course, I, I know what's in my water. I'm measuring what's in my water. So I know, but I can tell you where I, where you live is important or whether you're going to have these things in your water or not. And where I used to live, for example, in Athens, Georgia, for many years, treat, they treated with chlorine um, and they introduced, oh, I can't remember if they introduced UV at some point, but anyway, they treat with chlorine, but the natural organic matter, for some strange reason, even though it's a warm climate, is very low. It's only 1.5 to 2 milligrams per liter of organic matter. So the DBPs formed were not that bad, and, um, and they didn't have any measurable iodide in their source water, and they had very low levels of bromide. So those levels of brominated and iodinated DBPs were pretty low. So I never filtered my water when I lived in Athens. I felt like, okay, you know, this is fine. 
Um, but where I live now, we, I do have natural levels of iodide and the organic matter is about twice, more than twice of what I had in Georgia. And so personally, I do filter my water now just in case because I drink a lot of water every day. I probably drink more than your average person, probably do drink two liters or more of water every day. Um, so I am filtering my water now where I am, but it really just depends where you are. So I, um, but I don't have a whole house filter, for example, so I'm not filtering my shower water. Maybe I should be, but I, I'm not taking necessarily extremist view. You know, I would never say don't drink your water, but possibly you might need to filter it. And those treatment plants, drinking water treatment plants are, they have very good engineers, usually at the medium to large plants and um, they their families drink the water so they are trying to do the best that they can of what they think is the best thing to do within the budget that they have so you know I've worked with so many treatment plant operators that are super great people so they really do care about how they're treating the water and what's in the water and they're always trying to make the best decisions given the source water that they have and you know they get what they get you can't just say, oh, I want that one from Georgia that's got low organic matter. You know, you get, you get what you get. It's whatever your river has or your groundwater has or your lake has, you know, so you have to treat the water you have. And some people now are starting to treat wastewater because that's all that they have. You know, I'd rather not right. go that route personally. I hope that I don't have to drink treated wastewater necessarily, but um, you get the water you get and the plant operators try to do the best they can. Well, very good. Susan, we're, we're at, at a time. What's the best way for people to find out more about the regulations in their area and the regulations in general and what they can do to ensure they have the best water they can get? So they can Google the EPA regulations. You can just Google DBP regulations. They'll pop up, easy to find. And then the other little secret to finding out about your local water is that there are these consumer um, confidence reports, or they call them water, sometimes they're called water quality reports. So Google water quality, drinking water quality, and the name of your city, and often you can pull up online these water quality reports, and they'll tell you how your water's treated, and they will tell you if um, the kinds of DBPs, often they'll tell you what can be found, and whether you've had any violations of the regulations. They're required from from by Congress to be able to tell the their consumers if they've had any violations, if they've exceeded, you know, any of the regulatory limits. So that's an easy okay. way to find out. Very good. Well, Susan, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Okay. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.